0: Matthew chapter 15, verses 32 to 39. I will actually, that's the text, I will start in verse 29 of Matthew 15. The word of the Lord, listen reverently as I read it to you. And departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up to the mountain, he was sitting there. And great multitudes came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them, so that the multitude marveled as they saw the dumb speaking. The crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the multitude, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And he directed the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, and thanking God, giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples in turn to the multitudes." And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. And sending away the multitudes, he got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. Pray with me once again for the sermon. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word read and for the opportunity to hear it preached. Uh, Lord, I am an inadequate vessel uh, in and of myself, but by your grace, uh, Lord Jesus, you can make me adequate um, and use my words and make them your words. We ask that you would, in fact, do that as you have promised to do uh, in your word Uh, when uh, the scriptures are faithfully expounded uh, by a a lawfully ordained preacher. We ask that you would do that this morning, that you would be our preacher, uh, and that we would be um, drawn closer to your holy heart uh, through this time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not... I don't normally do this anymore. I used to do this regularly, and I don't anymore uh, at the request of my children. But I'm going to do it today, make an exception, uh, because it's it's a flattering thing that I'm about to say about one of my children. Um, <laughs> and that is uh, my youngest in particular. Uh, she is a a wonderfully compassionate child uh and i'm sorry olivia and uh she loves all sorts of god's creatures big and small and uh she just has such a heart of kindness towards animals that it's just it puts me to shame uh oftentimes she she has mercy on the cockroaches that i want to kill she wants them protected and put outside so daddy can't get to them I don't understand that, but at any rate, uh, she her heart goes out to animals, and especially when animals are, um, um, you know, not doing so well physically. Uh, she longs to help them and to get them in a safer place and and take care of them. And she just her heart goes out to these creatures, and it's very admirable. And by the way. Uh, uh, compassion for our animals is something that is required in Scripture. Uh, we are not to abuse uh, animals. Um, that's not to say we can't eat them, uh, but we are not to abuse them prior to eating them. <laughs> At any rate, where was I? Okay, here we are. So the point I'm making is she is a very um, uh, compassionate soul. And this is something that... Uh, she and also all of us not only need to have for the animals, the animal kingdom, but also more so for uh, humanity. Uh, and this kind of heart that goes out and wants to help uh, somebody in need is exactly the heart of our Savior. And it is exactly the heart that we are to cultivate ourselves if we lack some of our Savior's compassion. This text is about our Savior's compassion on an estranged, uh, an alienated people, namely Gentiles, um, and he we are to uh, imitate our Lord. Uh, in all the ways that we can imitate our Lord, we are required scripturally to imitate our Lord. And this text calls us to that, among other things to which it calls us. In the preceding sermon, therefore in the preceding uh, passage, which last time you may recall uh, started in verse 21, involved the healing of the Syrophoenician or the Canaanite woman, as the text calls her, and goes through verse 31. Uh, when we were in that sermon, uh, in that text last week, uh, we saw in the evening service, so some of you were not there for that, but in that text we saw Jesus deliberately leaving the historical boundaries of ancient Israel uh, for the very Gentile region of Phoenicia, which was north and west of Israel proper, um, and it was uh, administrative uh, as part of uh, the Syrian province of, of, of Rome. Uh, thus, the Syrophoenician woman, where she gets her name sometimes. But here, uh, she is described as a descendant of the Canaanites that hated people, that cursed people, uh, whom the Israelites were supposed to wipe out entirely, but failed uh, to do. And uh, this woman received grace as a result of Israel's failure. Interesting to note, by the way. Um, and mercy, the woman in uh, the previous text. But anyway, Jesus left that... Uh, Israel where all the, the Jewish people were and went to a very Gentile region and there answered the Canaanites' plea to him to deliver her daughter uh, from the demon that possessed her and Jesus affirmatively answered that uh, woman's plea and uh, exercised that demon from her daughter. And so he's in Syrophoenicia and he shows this Gentile woman mercy in spite of the fact that she's a Gentile. Then... Jesus leaves, as we saw last time, uh, for those of you who are here. He leaves that Gentile region to the north and west of uh, Galilee, and he deliberately then travels to another heavily Gentile region southeast of the Sea of Galilee known as the Decapolis. It was named after ten cities that were there, which were probably more like towns uh, or villages, uh, but they were called cities uh, in the day. And the region was called the Decapolis. And it was on the other side of the Jordan River and of the Sea of Galilee. And Mark tells us that. By the way, Matthew's account doesn't, but the Mark's account does. Well, Matthew's account then uh, of what Jesus did when he was in the Decapolis is recorded for us in verses 30 and 31. And I won't bother reading it again just now, although I will read it a little bit later. But he records all the miracles that he performed there among Gentile peoples. Once again, he we see him in that text very intentionally ministering to these people who, to use Paul's words in Ephesians 2, had previously been excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And he's ministering to them in the Decapolis. And that's where we ended uh last our our uh, sermon last time and it's fairly apparent from the way that Matthew transitions from verse 31 to verse 32 um, from his description of Jesus healing of the gentiles in the Decapolis in verses 29 to 31 to this description of Jesus feeding of the 4000 it's quite apparent that this latter miracle of the feeding of the 4000 uh occurs in the Decapolis. He hasn't moved, in other words, from the region where he was performing all those miraculous healings of the deaf and the dumb and the crippled and so on. And the church, down through the ages, uh, has, has largely recognized that the feeding of the 4,000 did in fact take place in the Decapolis. Uh, and that this is sequential here, uh, moving from verse 29 to verse uh, uh, through Verse 39. In other words, the point I'm getting by pointing out this Gentile nature of his audience is that he is once again, the Gentiles are once again objects of our Savior's mercy. Not just mercy in deliverance from disease and disability, but mercy in providing for more mundane needs, I say mundane, hunger, and the need for bodily sustenance. We find the Lord, again, Ministering to these Gentile folks, um, and they are objects of his deliverance from hunger, which um, points to other deliverances that he can uh, bring about in their lives. And by the way, as you, uh, the text noted, I'll just point it out uh, one last time, and then I won't say any more about it. It's, uh, it was actually considerably more than four thousand people. It was four thousand men, as we read. Um, it was 4,000 men plus women and children. Who knows what number that uh, eventually ended up being, whether that was 6,000 or 8,000, who knows? It was a lot of people. It was a lot of people. This brings me to the three points uh, that I want you to see in this text, that are in this text. First is, we see in this text that Jesus felt compassion for the Gentile multitude, here in the Decapolis. Secondly, we see Jesus' disciples served the Gentile multitude here in the Decapolis. And finally, this text points to the fact that Jesus miraculously satisfied the Gentile multitude here in the Decapolis, or there in the Decapolis, rather. So first, he felt or was moved with compassion for the Gentile multitude. We see him here informing the disciples of how he felt in verse 32 i feel compassion uh, for the multitude and then he gives the reason but he he tells them i feel this way he's instructing them when he tells them that you're to feel that way too by the way is what he's saying what does it mean to feel compassion? Well, here the uh, the Greek is is kind of interesting, and I'm just going to give you a, a couple of Greek words just uh, for the fun of it, uh, just for no other reason because they're kind of fun to say. Uh, this one word in particular, uh, but the Greek word for to feel compassion that Jesus uses there, the Greek word for that is splunknizomai. Kind of hard to say, actually. Splunk it's uh, splunknizomai. I, I, But butchered it right there. Anyway, that Greek word is derived from another Greek word, uh, which is splonknon. And splonknon refers to the viscera, to the intestines, or the bowels, or the or the belly. And so the word uh the verb splonchumai, to be moved uh by one's intestines is literally what that means. To be moved by one's intestines. Not to have intestinal movement, but to be moved by one's intestines. <laughs> um, that means, uh, in the ancient world, well, the the intestines rather were thought to be the seat of one's tenderest emotions. So, emotions such as pity and sympathy and love and mercy were thought to emanate from the lower regions of the the uh, torso. Should we call it that? And so the verb to be moved by one's intestines, sponchonismi, came to mean in the ancient world to feel great affection or sympathy or compassion or pity towards someone who was suffering from some affliction or adversity. So when Jesus says so what is going on here is Jesus saying, and that's largely what's being communicated in the English too, but it's, it's a little more fulsome when you look at it in the Greek, I think, and, and makes it a little more richer. And so Jesus is, he was feeling sympathy or pity for this multitude um, who was weary at this point in time and who was in need of help And he had a corresponding, with his sympathy, a deep desire to do something, to ease their weariness and their burden that they had because of the circumstances around them. Jesus felt compassion for these Gentile folk. Just as he was moved by compassion, uh, uh, a similar desire uh, to help, For the Jewish multitude some months earlier. Over in, we looked at this a few weeks back, but over in Matthew chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000. We read, uh, we read there now when Jesus heard it. He withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And when the multitudes heard of this that he had withdrawn, they followed him on foot from the cities. That was around the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And when he went ashore, he saw the great multitude coming toward him around the north end of the Sea of Galilee uh, and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. But that was largely a Jewish uh, horde, if you will, or crowd of people on that occasion. Uh, but he felt similar emotions and desires toward these Gentiles as he did toward the Jews on that previous occasion. Well, why on this occasion does he feel this sympathy, uh, this pity for these folks? Well, the first and most Obvious reason, uh, which is not stated in the text, by the way. That's the second reason. But the first and most obvious reason is because uh, Jesus is the incarnate God of Scripture. Uh, Jesus said, uh, "In the beginning was the Word." In the beginning was the Word. John said this. Jesus through John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Down in verse fourteen of John one, that Word, of course, who became flesh was. Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, incarnate, enfleshed. And as God, he exhibits all the qualities and attributes of a deity, and one of those attributes of deity uh, is his compassion. Psalm 30, uh, 103, rather, uh, very familiar psalm, verse 8, we read, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That Lord, Yahweh, of verse 8 in the psalm, is the same one who is here in the Decapolis looking at the multitude around him. He is compassionate. He is infinitely compassionate towards those who are objects of his compassion. And it is Yahweh enfleshed who was there and thus that explains one reason why he was felt compassion for these folks. But the second reason is mentioned in the text, of course, and that is on account of the predicament that this multitude found themselves in. Uh, the multitude to which Jesus refers was mentioned as I, uh, in the previous section, verses 30 and 31. It's the same great multitude, almost certainly, that uh, was bringing, uh, came to him and was bringing uh, crippled people, lame people, blind people, people who couldn't speak, and so on and so forth, uh, to Jesus. And he was healing uh, who knows how many people. Probably, uh, it appears that it was hundreds of people. Uh, that were healed, and perhaps even more than that. It was lots of people. And this same multitude is the one that is referenced here when he says, I feel compassion for the multitude that he's been ministering to. And these multitudes had probably come out, uh, oh, let me finish reading the text there, uh, verse th- uh, 32. I feel, Jesus said, I feel mul- compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now three days. And have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So these multitudes had probably come out on the first day. Had heard about Jesus, had heard that he was, at least that he was a miracle worker, and perhaps some of them, or many, maybe even a lot of them, knew that he was the promised Messiah, or might be the promised Messiah of Jewish uh, scripture. Anyway, uh, they came out probably on the first day with the expectation of returning to their homes by nightfall on that particular day. But they were apparently so captivated by the many miracles that Jesus had performed that first day that, sounds like most all of them had no interest in departing at the end of the day. Uh, and were probably concerned that they might miss Jesus' next healing or deliverance uh, on the next day because Jesus wasn't going anywhere, so they weren't going to go anywhere either. So they stuck around. They laid down with inside of Jesus and disciples and spent the night under the stars. The next morning they got up and once again spent the entire day watching this Jewish holy man do his thing. And they still hadn't gotten enough of their, I hate to call it spectating, but you know what I mean. Uh, They still hadn't gotten enough of what Jesus was doing at the close of the second day. And so, uh, they did the whole sleeping on the ground thing, once again. For another night, and spent yet a third day drinking in the mercies of the God of Israel manifested in this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Many of these Gentiles had undoubtedly brought some food supplies with them uh, the first morning they came out to see Jesus. After all, it was an uninhabited place, a desolate place, to which they were going in order to be with Jesus. Verse thir- uh, 33 tells us that, that it was a desolate place, uninhabited. Um, and it might be a long day. That first day might have been a long day. and um, So uh, they uh, would have brought, you know, would have, uh, and there wouldn't have, there wouldn't be any villages nearby to uh, buy things. Uh, apparently, they were out in a, between those ten villages, uh, out in the countryside, and they wouldn't easily be able to buy anything. So they probably brought food with them. Almost certainly did. But by the third day of being there, any provisions that they might have brought had dwindled down to nothing, and so they were without food. The whole mass of them. And if Jesus, as he points out, should send them away near the end of this third day out in the middle of nowhere without feeding them, they might well collapse on their way home and perhaps suffer uh, uh, a bad end. And so Jesus uh, feels the need to do something. What are the implications of the fact that Jesus is moved with compassion for these Gentiles and took pity... Uh, as we'll see in a moment, on these Gentiles, actually took action. Well, first of all, as I've already pointed out, he pointed out to his disciples what he was feeling. That was instructive. It was designed to instruct. I feel this way, gentlemen, so should you. And ladies and gentlemen, so should you. We are Christians, Christians. We are to be little Jesuses to the world. And that means we are to, uh, in every way that we can, we are to emulate, as I mentioned earlier, our Savior. And we too are to be moved with compassion, with a desire to help those who need help. This text And Jesus' example is communicating that to us. We are to be compassionate. It's so easy, is it not, to walk into Walmart, to walk all around, or whatever, pick your grocery store, uh, and to just see people without seeing their spiritual needs never even think of their spiritual needs. I do it all the time. Sad to say. Imagine you do it some of the time too. It's easy to not see not only their spiritual needs, but people who are hurting. You know, the uh, the folks that often often the folks like who end up down at God tell. Or who sleep out in the woods out east of town. Who have drowned their sorrows in a bottle or with drugs. These people are hurting. They're just like you and me. It's easy to be annoyed by those folks when they panhandle. Or when they, you know, are nearby and don't smell so good. we got to get past that. We're required to get past that. We're, we're required to care. To want to help. Now we can't always help everybody. We, we can't help everybody. And we can't always help the people we want to help. Because they don't want help, perhaps. But we need to care. We need to have and be moved with compassion, with pity for people, and not just see them as another creature with whom we have to interact. We need to see their needs and care. Also, this text, as I already alluded to a little while ago, uh, God's desire teaches us that God's desire to show compassion... Um, and provide deliverance to weary souls is not restricted to those within the church. The church is the Israel of God. I noted that the feeding of the 5,000, thousand they were Jewish folks. That was the church of the day. But Jesus wasn't just concerned about the membership of the visible church nor is he just concerned about the membership of the visible church today. There are lots of people out there that aren't in church. They're not not in the visible church. They've never been baptized. They've never heard a sermon. They've never heard... There's some people, probably not too many, who couldn't tell you anything about Jesus other than his name that live in this community. They are the spiritual Gentiles of our day. We are the spiritual Jews of our day. Romans 2. We are not just to be concerned because our Lord is not just concerned about people that go to church. Yes, he's concerned about people who go to church. Don't get me wrong. But he's concerned about more than that. Secondly, more briefly, the next two points. Jesus' disciples served the Gentile multitude. Not only did Jesus feel compassion for the Gentile multitude, Jesus' disciples served the multitude. And he did this in accordance with their master's wishes. Jesus intentionally gives them a role in serving food to the hungry masses that he uh, provided for. And again, just as Jesus required his disciples to serve the Jewish Multitude uh, At the feeding of the 5,000. He requires the disciples to participate in service on this occasion. You can see where I'm going with this, right? This has implications for you and me. Well, first implication, and this isn't directly about you and me, but it is uh, an implication of this text that Jesus required his, uh, his disciples to serve these people. With the exception of Judas Iscariot, all of these now disciples would become apostles of Christ, sent ones, sent out to bring the gospel to the world. And you remember, it was these men... Apostles as apostles along with the New Testament prophets who would become the foundation of the new temple, which is the church of the New Testament age. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 and following, we read this. So then, you, you Gentile Christians Jesus is talking to, you then are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built upon, you Gentiles, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. These men were... Along with the New Testament prophets were the foundation of the New covenant temple, the church of the New Testament age, and their service to Gentiles on this occasion in the feeding of the four thousand along with uh, it, it anticipates their future role as instruments through whom the resurrected and ascended Christ would serve his spiritual food to Gentiles across the ancient world. They were the conduits of that spiritual food that, in the form of the gospel, that would go out and uh, would nourish Gentiles who heretofore uh, were not a part uh, largely of the church. And so this text is a, a... Precursor, a uh, fore, uh, foreshadowing of their role uh, as apostles, feeding souls in the Gentile world, and yes, while many of them uh, were also feeding, uh, you know, bringing the gospel to Jewish uh, quarters, uh, they were also, when they had opportunity, even though they weren't like the Apostle Paul, only among almost only among Gentiles, when they had opportunities, undoubtedly were ministering to Gentiles also. A second application. The fact that Jesus required the original 12 to serve the people whom he, Jesus, wished to minister to on that occasion reminds you and me uh, that he requires us to do the same as opportunity presents itself. To serve and meet the needs of people around us, whatever those needs may be for food, encouragement, a listening ear, The gospel, prayer, whatever. The fact that we are to serve, uh, that that is a requirement, if you will, of a New Testament believer. um, Or a believer, I should say, is just one text that reminds us of this. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, where we read, As each one has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another. Uh Now there, he's talking about serving others in the church, but by implication, that extends beyond the church because you're to love your neighbor and your your neighbor isn't necessarily going to be in your church. And love, one of the ways we love is we serve. So, as each one of you has received a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak, as it were, the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so, as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong, belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus' disciples were called upon by our Lord to serve Gentiles Uh, and we are to be servants of others around us as well, uh, including unbelievers. And then thirdly, this text points to the fact that Jesus miraculously uh, satisfied the Gentile multitude, verses 36 through 38, just again, as he did the Jewish multitude uh, at the feeding of the 5,000 plus. Now there are some... uh, People who uh, really blasphemously, I think, wish to say that the feeding of the 4,000, it isn't as wondrous. It isn't as uh, uh, miraculous as his feeding of the 5,000 was. And they say this because with the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus used more bread cakes than he did with the feeding of the 5,000 and fewer fish. Oh, excuse me, he fed fewer people. That was it used more bread cakes, he fed fewer people. That is a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah. Hendrickson, William Hendrickson, the great uh, 20th century commentator, reformed commentator, said this on that little foolish, idiotic, really, thing that some want to say. Humanly speaking, it is just as impossible to cause seven bread cakes and a few fish to be sufficient for 4,000 than to make bread cakes and a few fish, no, excuse me, than to make five bread cakes and two fish enough for 5,000. It takes a miracle to do either. Amen, Mr. Hendrickson. It's stupid. It's just downright stupid to say things like that. Or to, to think, well, oh, I like this miracle better because there are more people and it was splashier. Not true. 4,000 people is four times the size of the town I grew up in. That's a lot of people. Anyway, you get the idea. Implications of the fact that Jesus satisfied uh, six, eight thousand people, whoever many mouths were there. well, as with any miracle, only God himself can do something like this, which is exactly who Jesus was, as I said earlier. he wasn 't merely a channel for uh, the power of God, as some would want to say, well, that was god 's power, but jesus wasn 't God, no, Jesus was the I am. And fleshed. Um, I wasn't going to read it, but I will because I like the text. John chapter eight, one of my favorite texts for the uh, divinity of Christ. Um, his cr- critics are criticizing him, and uh, uh, he uh, he had said uh, he had, they had accused him of having a demon and he said i do not have a demon and so on and so forth and uh finally he uh, he retorts he says if i glorify myself my glory is nothing it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our god and you have come you have not come to know him but i do know him and if i say that i do not know him i shall be a liar like you but i do know him and keep his word Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw Jesus' day. And the Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? These men were Anyway, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He used the divine name, Yahweh, you know, that we, we... say Yahweh, guess it, Yahweh. We don't know what, how it sounded. But he used the tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew consonants uh, translated into Greek, and he said it. Actually, it might have been Aramaic, in which case he might have actually said it in, uh, in, with the original Hebrew, because Aramaic is very close to Hebrew. At any rate, Jesus is God That's why Jesus was able to, miraculously, without any problem, provide food for all those people from that pittance that was available. And um, he had to be both God and man, and has to be right now both God and man, which he is, in order to save any of us. Just remind you briefly why that is. He had to be man, he had to be fully human, that doesn't mean he's a sinner because Adam wasn't a sinner when he was created. He had to be fully human in order to act as our play, in our place, as our substitute. And he had to be fully God in order to resist the temptations to fall into sin and in order to absorb the infinite wrath that, uh, was placed upon him when he was hanging upon the cross. Oh, and also to live a morally perfect life, which was kind of restating what I said when I said, uh, not fall to temptation. So he had to be both God and man or he couldn't have gotten the job done. The only Jesus that saves is the God-man. Do you know the God-man as your Savior and Lord? If you don't, you're on the road to hell. You must embrace this Jesus or you will end up there and you do not want to end up there. Only, Jesus can only be embraced by faith alone. You can only be united to Jesus in a way that, uh, that brings about your forgiveness by trusting fully and only in him to make you right with God, to reconcile you to a God who is now angry at you if you're a non-Christian. He is angry. You are a son of wrath right now. His wrath. And the only way that wrath will be removed is if Jesus if you flee to Jesus with, and cling to him, as the psalmist says, as your only hope of being forgiven, and you will be, but you must um, you must deny yourself. You must not look into anything in you, your baptism, your good deeds, whatever, at all. And you must flee to Jesus as your only hope. If you haven't done that, do that now before it's too late one last implication of the fact that Jesus satisfied these gentiles and that is and I've kind of already said it but our savior's ability to satisfy physical hunger and the physical uh, and provide physical food on this occasion it bespeaks his ability to satisfy a sinner's spiritual hunger and to provide him with the necessary spiritual food. Once again, further motive to flee to Christ. So, this whole section, starting back in verse 21, going all the way to verse 39, is all about the fact that um, Jesus decides, purposely, intentionally goes to Gentile areas to minister among Gentiles, and this anticipated... His intention to extend his saving uh, work to large numbers of Gentiles in the New Testament age. And we are the beneficiaries of that um, expansive compassion of God, the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. We would have been excluded largely, most of us in the old Old Testament. We wouldn't have heard about Jesus. We wouldn't have heard about Messiah. Now Jesus' name is even in North Korea and Saudi Arabia being heard. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your expansive mercy and pity. That you have for afflicted souls, be they Jew or Gentile. Thank you that you took pity upon those of us who are already Christians, so seeing us in our wallowing in our sin and our darkness, and you mercifully reached down and raised us up, gave us new hearts to believe on Jesus. Thank you so much for your sovereign uh, saving work in our lives. Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you savingly, who has deluded himself or herself into thinking, I'm okay, we're good, I believe in Jesus, but they're not really trusting the Jesus of the Bible or trusting in him alone to save him or her. Would you please show such a one that this is a grievous error and give the grace of faith so that he or she might flee to Jesus, the God-man who alone can provide satisfaction in the soul. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.